Good morning, good afternoon and good night. Welcome to Herpetological Highlights, episode 30. I am Tom Major, one of your co-hosts, and joining me is Ben Marshall, as per usual. And um, today we're going to be talking about toads, which is a topic that Ben has been hounding me to do for ages. I actually personally cannot stand toads, but um, yeah, we're going to be doing an episode on toads. Well, I mean, I was hounding you to do an episode on toads, not specifically this type of toad, mm. just any type no, of toad. No, and it's important to note you weren't actually hounding me. I actually was kind of then reciprocally hounding you to do a particular episode on these particular toads for a particular reason. So before you think Ben's some kind of right. egomaniacal psychopath, it was actually me who led the charge in this episode. But nevertheless, I'm still upset about toads. <laughs> if that makes any sense. What now, a cryptic message. Let's, 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 tackle this, let's tackle this front on. What don't you like about toads and why um, don't you like it? I do like them. I'm actually really only joking, but um, I don't know. I just, I think um, you have a, an unhealthy obsession with toads and I just kind of, I just fight myself fighting back against it. I, they're marvellous. They're marvellous. They're adaptable. I got some toad facts. I got some toad history to open up with if you're, if you're willing. The history of toads. Is this kind of going to be like some kind of the history toad cultural extravaganza? Toads. No, but it's how they conquered the world. They haven't conquered the world. Well, sort of. <laughs> I've literally never, ever, ever been surpassed by a toad. <laughs> so, so it all began in the Upper Cretaceous around 88 million years ago. That's, that's, when, they, that's when they sort of first arose. And uh, this was all the way over in South America. And they managed to spread pretty much to every single continent across the globe, barring Australia and Antarctica. And Madagascar, as we'll mention in a little minute. But that's sort of a subcontinent slash island, so not quite the same. But the point is, they're pretty much everywhere, and they're fantastically adaptable. Um, and what are we talking? Oldest actual Bufanid member about 57 million years ago and currently there are 481 species of these beautiful Bufanids. Wow. And all that info's from a Pramuk paper, Pramuk et al. in 2008, around the world in 10 million years. Cool. So toads have been here for a while and they've been kind of running a show. Although they're not really running a show, are they? But they're kind of the sort of background background little sort of i don't know what you'd call them terrestrial warty little monsters terrestrial warty monsters um that's that's their proper name yeah that's uh, that's what boofinid means so toads haven't been tiny warty monster <laughs> so they haven't been around longer than the dinosaurs which is always a jazzy fact to draw out but they've been around for a long time regardless but they were almost rubbing shoulders with some. Did you say, yeah. what did you say? In the Cretaceous period, they first appeared. Well, yeah, start, starting occurring 88 million years ago, but like proper oldest Bufanid fossil, like uh, documentation is 57 million years ago. So the paper is uh, inferring divergence times from molecular stuff and fossils as a sort of calibration point. That's cool. If I remember correctly. Cool. Pretty sure that's the way they did it. So the toads are old. And just as a comparison, anurans in general 
195 million years ago. Hmm. So frogs are much older, those kinds of frogs. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, despite having been around on the Earth for that long, there's kind of still finding new places to be. And you mentioned, didn't you, briefly there, that they're not on, what was it? Antarctica, Australia and Madagascar. Yeah, and some various other islands, like they weren't on Hawaii and there's places in the Pacific that they weren't on. You know, there's there's plenty of little islands that they haven't managed to get to mm. yet. But yeah, the operative term in that sentence is they weren't, because now many cases toads are, like the cane toads in Australia. And um, as we're going to discuss in this episode, the Bufo melanostictus, no, it's not, it's Datafrinus melanostictus. I'm going to say that again. Yes, used to be Bufo melanostictus. Yeah. Uh, which is found, well, now, more places than it should be. Yeah, so natively, Southeast Asia, everywhere from like India all the way over to southern China. Um, and possibly not just one species too. There are a couple of papers looking into that, a Wogan et al. 2016 and a Fences et al. 2017. And it looks like there may be some sort of species complex going on. Which you can't be too surprised because it's Southeast Asia and herpetofauna studies and herpetofauna taxonomy, which is still very much in progress. And when you get these sort of high abundance, high um, large distribution species that are common, people don't tend to look at them because they're not a particular, particular conservation concern or anything along those lines, so they get forgotten. And there's these species complexes that are just left untouched until relatively recently. Yeah, they Although are. there is still more work to be done. Yeah, and um, you say they're widespread. I mean, we've both seen them in Thailand a lot. I remember seeing them all mm. the time. And um, yeah, I mean, they're obviously... Yes, we have one that lives in the house. Oh, do you? They're, um, they're like... Yeah. They're not... I mean, uh, this episode, there's a risk it could be seen quite doom and gloom because we're going to be talking about uh, an invasive species which seemingly has the potential to be you know, pretty bad in most respects. Um, but I don't know, it's always important when you're thinking of species in this context that you remember that in their native range, they're just stone cold chillers that live alongside everything else. And they're cool to see. Like, you know, even cane toads in the Americas, for the most part, in their native range, they're actually just a part of the ecosystem. And coming across one is like a treat. It's a fun thing to do. They're, you know, they're cool. And um, at least in Thailand, I was always happy to see these toads. I mean, they're massive. They're funny little things. Um, you know, they don't care about people. Yeah, and they're just wonderfully most charming creatures. They're so chill that you can, you know, they're just sort of wandering along, hopping about, doing their thing. And they don't really care about people. So you can get a really nice, good look at them without freaking them out. And they've got wonderful little faces with a sort of dark, they're sort of generally quite tan, but they can go all the way to sort of a dark chocolatey browny slaty grey almost mm. and and then also quite light. The ones you see most of the time around here are a good middling tan colour. Yeah. But they have these wonderfully dark, almost like someone's uh, taken a black marker pen to them. They make little distinct eyebrows and bits on the nose. They're really quite they're cute. Yeah. They're cute they, in their own toady way. They do, and they definitely have among the best like grumpy expression of any toad, I think. They just oh, look yeah. livid when you look at them in the eye. <laughs> just like toad toad what, what's got to you toad and uh like you say they don't mind people so i remember watching them eat ants for ages you know they just sort of waddle around eating the odd ant really quickly poking the tongue out yeah yeah they're cool 
They are, they're nice. But um, sadly, the topic of this podcast isn't how nice they are. It's kind of how potentially damaging and what they're doing as an invasive species in Madagascar. Mm. So on that note, shall we jump straight into the first paper? Yeah. So our first one's uh, published in 2015 in one of my absolute favourite journals, Tropical Conservation Science, by Moore, Fiddy and Edmonds. The New Toad in Town, Distribution of Asian Toad that Afrinus Melanostictus in the Taramacina area of eastern Madagascar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like you say, mm. good journal, cool journal, and this one's open access, so if you want to read it, it's on the internet, ready for you to go. Yeah, and the first two sentences of my notes are, Toad are big problem, poison and eat. So the toads there are so damaging that Ben, the <laughs> level of surprise that has given Ben has actually ruined his ability to use proper grammar. That gives you some idea of just how shocked Ben is. And this is Ben's. This was Ben's life for a time. <laughs> oh, Tom, bad day work. There's just a simplistic beauty with toad are big problem. <laughs> toad are big problem. I mean, no one can deny it. Toad are big problem. And um, yeah, toad bad, bad, bad. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so this paper, oh. they were looking at the toad introduction in Madagascar around Tuamasina. Um, just to recap, we're talking about Dutafrinus melanostictus, the Asian toad. Not a very imaginative common name, but... Um, well, it does have alternative names. You have, you can call it, uh, I think, black-spined toad. Isn't that what the which scientific name is means? Which what melanostictus comes from, yeah. yeah. Um and there are very there are variations on combining Asian and black and spines together in various ways for different other common names. Spine Asian black um, toad. Yeah, I know in Australia it's definitely called uh, like black spiny toad or something along those lines more commonly than Asian common toad. Hmm. Or at least the papers I've read from there. Anyway. Cool. Cool. Um, but yeah, so. The reason Moore and colleagues were looking at these toads is because they were found in and around Tomasina, which is in eastern Madagascar. And um, the trouble is with them finding them there is that they are not a native species. As we said, they've been transported there. And as they come from Southeast Asia, it's fair to assume that they came in some kind of cargo, which has come from Southeast Asia. And where they found themselves... Yeah, they found themselves in this novel environment... And they've done what some toads do best, which is just proliferate and spread and take advantage of a new habitat where they don't have any, well, they don't necessarily have the same level of competition or predation that they experience in their native range that keeps them in check. Mm. And before we just jump in to why that's actually an issue, uh, in terms of where they came from, that Vences et al. 2017 paper, um does look like they came from the Cambodia-Vietnam area. Had a very limited mitochondrial diversity, so it's looking like it was possibly one introduction with, from one source, probably not too many individuals. But, yeah, relatively, I mean, more narrowed down than just Southeast Asia, it could be any one of them, because it is looking like it is Cambodia and Vietnam as opposed to some of the other lineages, there's a lineage in Thailand and Malaysia, there's a lineage in uh, China, there's a lineage in Myanmar and Northern Thailand, mm. and another one in, in like Northern Myanmar and Laos and 
other places. That's very interesting. So you're saying that they, Fences and Glor found that they were all from this Cambodian sort of um, genome. Fences et al. Fences et yeah. Okay. So um, how many toes did they test in that paper? And were they from a big area? Did they sort of sample from the extent? I mean, and when was it? I've got lots of questions about this. I haven't seen that one. So let me have a quick look at the paper. When you mean how many they had, one, two, three, four, five, six. It looks like they had seven different ones from, or at least seven different localities from Madagascar. And one, two, three, four, five, maybe five or six uh, localities matching that haplotype in Southeast Asia. But in terms of other ones they sampled across Southeast Asia, it's a, it looks like a lot. There are a lot of different colored dots on that map. Um, haplotype network for 340 sequences and 59 distinct haplotypes. 102 samples from Madagascar. So a lot. Yeah, wow, okay. Because they got 102 from Madagascar, they got a lot more from mainland Southeast Asia, yeah. which might be 340. It's cool because, generally speaking, we've talked about it on the podcast before, if there's a very low genetic diversity, it can suggest that, or it can be a precursor to an unsuccessful invasion, but obviously it hasn't hampered these toads. Yeah, no, that's quite, it's quite remarkable when you think of a potential single introduction but as we'll talk about in this paper, it may have taken a little bit of time to get going. So that might have explained the sort of slow build. It comes to my second sentence in my nose. <laughs> Poisoned and eat. Poison and eat. <laughs> yeah. And I wanted to bring up, I'll do the eat part first. One is you're introducing another species into an ecosystem that's going to predate things. For toads, that's probably the lesser of the two problems. But... This is a fantastic excuse to bring up that O'Shea et al. 2013 paper, which I know you've read, called Fantastic Voyage. Uh, Voyage? Voyage. Oh, Mark O'Shea's A live blind steak journeys through the gastrointestinal system of a toad. In Herb Notes. Mm-hmm. Yep, the old uh, which, Brahmini blind snake. Yep. Just goes all the way through a toad. Gets eaten, comes out the other end. Yeah, and it came out the other end and survived for at least seven or eight hours. Was it seven or eight hours? It was longer than it should have. Yeah, it really should have been dead, but it was all mashed up, but it was alive, which is insane. Yeah. So, lesser issue, toads eating stuff. And probably that instance of a blind snake being eaten is probably quite uncommon. Um, Yeah. That being said, quite a diverse generalist diet, these toads. Yeah. No, the real big issue is (coughs) these guys are poisonous. Bufonids have bufotoxins, which, if consumed by things that don't have a res- uh, sort of resistant <coughs> gene, which we'll get into later, will uh, poison them, kill them, cause cardiac arrest, all sorts of horrible things like that. And the real kicker is, when you start poisoning all your predating species, like, say, mam- uh, decent-sized mammals like quolls in Australia, or decent-sized monitor lizards... Something like that, you're going to cause this situation where smaller species that are predated are suddenly more abundant because their predators have been released from their predator pressure, and you've got this whole ecological trophic cascade going on that will ripple through the ecosystem and dramatically change things and potentially take a very long time to recover. And it was a 
recent paper that just looked at this with monos lizards and smaller lizards by uh, Fate et al, like hot off the presses, uh, 2018 paper, which basically shows, yeah, this is happening with different lizard species and monitor lizards. So it's real. Yeah. Trophic cascades are happening. Yeah, trophic cascades are one of those things. It's quite hard to study, but they're definitely a big deal. And of course, they're going on in the oceans as well. We're killing millions of sharks and it's just like causing chaos. But talking about, you mentioned the um, Asian toads diet. The the interesting thing about that observation where it ate a Brahmini blind snake is actually that's an invasive species preying on an in- invasive species. So that one's kind of a, a <laughs> of course the flower pot snake that's been introduced into more parts of the world than almost any other yeah, invasive and one species. Of, right? One of the best snakes out there. Um, and <laughs> yeah, and um, I don't know. There was another paper which said that uh, these toads have been reported to eat invertebrates from over twenty families. So. They just yes, very 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 broad. Yeah, diet. they'll eat like they just seem like they can take anything. Yeah, they'll just eat anything that's smaller than them. Really, they're just like a a a carnivorous sort of soft ball that just bowls around the landscape and eats whatever they can get hold of. Which makes them a very potent invasive species. If you're that flexible, mm-hmm. you can eat anything. Then wherever you wash up, there's you know there's food on the table. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, that's the sort of that sets the scene of why you might not want an Asian toad rolling around in your backyard unless it was supposed to live there. Because, as you say, they're toxic. Things which aren't familiar with them will eat them, and they'll eat anything that's smaller than themselves. So they're kind of a double threat. But um, toxicity, obviously, worse because, well, I mean, it depends on what scale you look at things. But as you say, I think the likelihood is that uh, taking out the top level predators in an ecosystem is going to be more damaging than altering the community at the lower levels um so yes and you always sort of suspect that the top level stuff's already under pretty significant pressure from humans in a lot of cases yeah for sure for sure so the idea behind this paper the uh, more paper that we're talking about from 2015 was to try and discover um the extent of the toads sort of not necessarily spread, but just find out where they were in 2015. They did this by asking some local people. It's really cool citizen science type of thing. Well, it's not really citizen science, but they interviewed lots of local residents. Well, it's, yeah, it's somewhat citizen science. You know, it's, it's yeah formalised citizen science, I guess. Yeah. Structured citizen the science. The citizens are there. They're not taking such a lead role, but they're being interviewed and their opinions are contributing to the data. So they asked something like 516 local people whether they'd seen these toads, which are really obvious because Madagascar doesn't really have anything else like them. People tend to be quite good at identifying them. And um, they asked them whether they'd seen the toads and when they first saw them. Um, And they were doing this research in 2015 and it seemed like most people had only really seen them in 2014 for the first time. It was like 60-something percent. Um, and there was a few people going back seeing them as early as 2010, which leads to the suggestion, as you said earlier on, that maybe they'd been there a little bit before 2010. Um, and alongside that, they also did some visual encounter surveys, which is, you know, your traditional go out at night with a torch, look around, see if they can find any toads. Find a toad. Yeah. I mean, in my experience, if you look for the, I mean, I never actually went out when I was in Thailand. I know you're there now. You probably see them all the time. Um, but when I... Well, as I say, there was one that lives in the shelving unit in the house. And every night or so, you you wander out, go foraging. 
and probably returns to the shelf at some point in the early morning. That's so funny. <laughs> seems to have a good life. <laughs> I love that it's got an agenda. We had another two that lived under the bathroom. They seem pretty chill. Yeah. I remember, I mean, I'm not, I can't say with certainty that it was the same toads, but when we were going back and surveying the same bits of forest on a reasonably regular basis, you'd always see toads in the same areas, which I presume, you know, they were a similar size and shape. I, they might well have been the same toads going about their business in the same place. Oh, yeah. Um, it would, I'd be very surprised if they didn't have a little narrow home range where they control the ants and worms and all that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> they, just, <laughs> they control the ants and stuff, like some sort of mafia don. They are this, this like, toady overseer. But yeah, they so they did the citizen science survey where they asked loads of local people from different areas if they'd seen the toads, and they also did... Uh, 120 visual encounter surveys over 37 nights looking for toads um, and they found toads at 48 sites which that mm. that looks you know if you find that many in that many different places it's starting to look like there's something pretty they're here to stay yeah it's not it's not just like oh there's some toads in this guy's garden come and check this out it's like everywhere we look we seem to find toads um yeah which ah, yeah it's not what you want to find out it's, especially when Everything we've already discussed has, you know, they're poisonous and they're extremely hungry and virile, apparently. <laughs> yeah, insanely so. Insanely so. I forget the numbers, but it's it's thousands of eggs in, a, in spawning aggregations. It's, 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 it's crazy. Yeah. Because it... that was one of the big issues with cane toads in Australia is the speed they can breed, even if they're not particularly good at what they do. Just by sheer numbers, yeah, <laughs> they can outcompete for Yeah, and am I right in saying that the tadpoles are also poisonous? Yes. Well, it starts from the very beginning. They are they're they're toxic from egg all the way up to you know adulthood, the whole whole shebang. But what uh, what happens is when they the eggs are laid, they're deposited with toxin in them. So there'll be a gradual decrease in toxicity until. Just prior to metamorphosis, metamorphosis, and uh, once they've metamorphosized and they can produce their own, the toxicity will go back up again, and then sort of tracks with just quantity of, of toxin in the toad. So the best, if you're going to eat a toad, kids, if you're listening, you want to eat it <laughs> just before, just before it metamorphosizes. And what's neat about this is if you look at some, uh, God, what snake species is? It? I think it's the Australian keelback, potentially. Um, you'll find that they eat more toads of that size as opposed to adults and uh, smaller ones. They ones don't make them feel as icky. Well, exactly. It's yeah. a really interesting little behavioural adaptation, isn't it? Um, yeah, and so these toads, they weren't just found in people's gardens, they're found in urban environments, around houses and courtyards. And also more rural villages, agricultural land, rice paddies, as well as kind of mixed eucalyptus forests, which have been planted for wood, secondary vegetation mm. and grassy areas. They just, you know, they were seemingly everywhere. Although they did seem to but like... So if more prominent in disturbed areas, yeah. right? That was their sort of, uh, what is it? It was a qualitative assessment. So it's just that seems to be what's occurring. There. Yes. And... Um, especially around piles of garbage and debris. So they're little trash goblins. Little trash goblin toads. The only thing about... It's interesting that, because there's a lot of... there's Pretty much everything you read will say that these toads are more common in disturbed areas and human 
modified areas, which I do believe because they're generalists and they're you know pretty adaptable in that sense. But there's this something in the I don't know if it's explicitly in the literature, but there's just this impression I got from the literature that there is a idea that they may not go into forests as much. But here, I know that people have seen them in the forests, and like not just on the edges, but pretty deep in them. Yeah. Well, I don't know. There's a there's a Reardon et al. paper in 2018, which I'll talk about a bit more, which is to do with some control measures. But one of the things they said was mm. that they failed to detect toads in forests. But they don't think it's because there weren't any. They think it's because it's harder to see them. Um, exactly. That's what's always been my, my worry. with Because uh, I've read a lot of the older stuff um, on Melanistictus in India and stuff, because that's pretty much all that exists. So surprisingly little... Uh, there are bits of research on them, but not as much as you'd like for something that's just invading somewhere and you want to quickly look up their ecology. But it all comes back to the same thing. and you, No one... It never seemed very systematic. It just seemed to be, this is where you find them. Not necessarily, this is where they're most abundant. Hmm. Yeah, it's difficult. It's one of those ones, isn't it? It's like, you know, people have to really put in a lot of effort to to distinguish between capture yeah. probability and rarity. And there's a lot of diversity in forests and yada, 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 all these sort of environmental factors that play into that. So Yeah. And you might not even be dealing with the same species in India that you are in southern Vietnam. Yeah. And if you want to go out on a frog hunt, you're going to look where you can see the frogs really easy. <laughs> well, yeah. You want to see some frogs. Exactly. You want to see some toads. <laughs> I'm not here to just look at the floor. I'm here to see some freaky toads. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, the, um, yeah, essentially the point of this paper really was just to kind of highlight the fact that this species was here and it, it wasn't, it wasn't therefore looking good. Yeah. I think some of the closing remarks talk about how, uh, this port town is pretty well connected with other parts of Madagascar, specifically a nine, uh, 600 kilometer canal that heads straight south. So in terms of something that you might look at and say, hey, that looks like a toad highway. Yeah, might be a toad highway. Yeah. Yeah. And it, hey, they can use real highways. There's a cool paper in Australia about cane toads and how they follow roads and they were actually moving in like straight lines along with roads and that was accelerating their spread. Yeah everyone always thinks of roads as being really damaging for wildlife but it, it is also an incredibly you know it's structurally there's nothing to get by you just stroll along if you're going to try and disperse along something you're going to take the least resistant method and that that can be a road. Yeah Especially, you can absolutely imagine a drainage ditch by the side of a road, a little bit more cover, a little bit more moisture. Yeah. Sort of generalist species that's making use of human disturbance. Yeah. No problem. Predators scared away from the road. Yeah. You, you know. And um, prey often sort of gathering by the side of the road where it's a bit confusing. Worms find themselves on the tarmac. There's <laughs> loads of bugs. There's lights from cars. It's all like, whoa, it's all go. Yeah. It's like a disco for the insects and the toads are always there just munching on bugs. Oh, they're ready. Yeah. And, um, ready and waiting. Yeah, interesting to hear you say about that canal because that was obviously a big threat. And the other thing um, is that because of all the other threats that are faced by animals in Madagascar, like, you know, the, ter- the deforestation and all that kind of stuff, um, it's possible that things like this slip through the net because so much work is being done in other areas to concentrate on 
the other sort of big issues that sometimes something like this toad, you know, it'd been there for potentially five years or even more before anyone thought to even highlight it. Yes, and it is <coughs> worth mentioning sort of general difficulties in just doing conservation work in a place like Madagascar, which I believe is one of the only places where people have become poorer in recent years without a conflict. Ruthless. But you say, you say that. Humans are under threat from toad poisoning too. There's plenty of reported uh, cases of people eating eggs or uh, toad skin and yeah. becoming ill and or dying from it across Southeast Asia. Yeah, places like Laos where people eat toads anyway. But I mean, it's really sad when that happens. But I think, you know, humans... To say a human is under threat from a toad, like, I mean, individually, a few people might die, and it's that's really sad. But yeah, for the most part, well, to people, you know, frog consumption isn't a yeah. insignificant thing in Madagascar. And another invasive species, although potentially not used the word invasive, but introduced because they're not. I don't think there's any sort of apparent harm they're doing. Is the uh, Indian tiger frog? Hoplobactracus tigrinus, tigerinus, which people eat, and uh, that's non-native. It just happens not to be toxic. Yeah, but mate, like people are pretty savvy, generally speaking. If someone dies from eating a toad, the word's going to spread pretty, pretty fast that that guy t- died from eating a toad. Don't eat those toads. Well, <laughs> yeah, but there's a difference between knowing that a toad's toxic and not having a choice. Because we're talking about other; these other reports are not from places where they've been introduced. It's they're coming out of Southeast Asia, where people have lived with these toads for as long as they have been Dodophrynus. Yeah, but by that logic, man, like people eat bleach occasionally. It doesn't mean that bleach is a threat to people. There's a little kid with no sense eats a toad. Well, doesn't mean that the toad is actually a threat to people. I mean, it's like there's millions. Do you know how many people are kicking around? There's loads of them doing stupid stuff. People f- die from sitting under <laughs> coconut trees. It doesn't mean coconuts are the next menace. Well, but they're preventable deaths. They're preventable. You could wear yeah. an anti-coconut helmet. <laughs> Don't even start with this. So I think, yeah, no, I get your point. I think you're right. And obviously, like, the fact that people are poisoned is really sad. And, you know, that people shouldn't be dying from toad poisoning. People should be aware. And actually, what they should be doing is instead of getting poisoned by them in Madagascar, they should be smashing them. But I don't think there's been any poisons in Madagascar yet, have there? <laughs> Not that I know of, yeah. no. And is it, would it be possible to just remove the parotid gland that the poison comes out from and eat the rest of the delicious flesh? I don't know. I don't know. Um... I mean, I wouldn't advise it. I don't know if cooking them sort of denatures the toxin at all, but I do know that if you they they did a they did some work with uh, what was it some skinks maybe or monitor lizards in uh, in Australia where they took the parotoid glands out, took the skin off, um, mushed up the rest of the toad into like toad meatballs, delicious, and um, fed. Fed the uh, monotolizers because they think, oh yeah, this will be a, a low toxicity dose for them. Um, and they still got pretty ill from it. They didn't die, but they weren't having a fun time. Well, that could have just been poorly trained chefs. <laughs> Potentially, it could be poor preparation. <laughs> you know, don't eat a poorly prepared fugu fish or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> That's great. So, <laughs> after hearing that description of how to prepare a toad for a meatball, I think we should have a spin off show. Which is just like eating herbs. 
exotic meats. Okay. Exotic. How to eat your toad. Exotic meats and where to find them and the delicacies of the jungle. You know, remove the protozoid glands carefully and then mince the flesh. Or if you're feeling really risky, just suck on the paratoid glands until you start having hallucinations. <laughs> and uh, forget about the rest of the toad. Didn't you say? Didn't you say the way you die is really awful? You have a heart attack, don't you? Well, yeah. So I mean, if you want to get into it, it's um, the toxin basically prevents proper regulation of sodium and potassium in the sodium and potassium. Yeah, sodium and potassium, and via that regulation of calcium in the cells and things, and basically it causes all sorts of horrible muscle contractions and a lot of the. It seems like your top cause of death is some sort of cardiac arrest. I think you could probably die of other ways, uh, depending on where it gets to first. But uh, you're dealing you're dealing with unpleasant muscle problems. It sounds like death primarily. would be a sweet release if all your muscles are contracting and agonizing. Yeah, I mean, you you hear the things where they've found animals out in the wild that have just eaten one and they're not having a good time and yeah no thanks man i'll give that a miss cool well um yeah i mean that is the threat now we understand the threat the toads are in madagascar they're raising hell they're raising hell ben i can't you know what the hell i mean the only thing that remains to be seen is are these animals gonna die when they eat the toads ah well that's quite a that would be quite a useful question to know the answer to. Wouldn't it, <laughs> wouldn't it be really convenient if um, an international team of uh, people from Madagascar, Germany, and the UK, and yeah, possibly other places actually, worked on that and found, found that out? I reckon it would. So shall I? Um, shall I introduce the next paper? Ingo, right ahead. Okay, so as you might have guessed, Ben's got some kind of inside knowledge of this topic. Um, and that's because he actually published his paper. So this one is by Marshall, Casewell, Vences, Glor, Andrione, Rakuto Arison, and Worcester, 2018. Widespread vulnerability. Oh, you didn't you, you miss two people? You missed Zanacoli and Wolk. Oh, gosh, mine's got dot, 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 so it's been abbreviated. Sorry. Who? Oh, outrageous. Did I miss Julia out as well? <laughs> okay. Yes. Sorry, who, who were the last two? Zanacoli and Warg. Zanacoli and Warg. I, I apologise if that's a mispronunciation again. And the paper is entitled Widespread Vulnerability of Malagasy Predators to the Toxins of an Introduced Toad, published in Current Biology yeah, in 2018. So yeah, Ben's paper. Off the press. Yeah. And, uh, well, I mean, you're probably a better place to talk about this than me. Um, but the... The idea was that you were looking to see whether or not there was an immunity present in loads of different animals in Madagascar when they eat a toad. Yeah, I mean that was that was that was the point. It's because everybody sort of um, everybody assumed there would be, <clears throat> right? Which is, as it turns out, quite a safe assumption. But at the same time, you don't want to be spending what would be a lot of money controlling a toad if it wasn't going to have considerable impact. Plus, there are some interesting evolutionary questions attached to this anyway. So, you have some species that can eat toads. You know, toads are not invulnerable. And uh, what's rather remarkable about all the vertebrates 
and some invertebrates that can deal with the type of toxin they have is that the solution is essentially identical regardless of species, family. But the point is, ridiculously diverse, all the same solution. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so basically there's... Um, I said the toxins uh, interrupting sodium-potassium movement, and there's a gene that's responsible for that, and the toxin attacks a specific gene. So if you look at that specific gene, you can work out whether it's resistant or not by the presence of a couple of amino acids in a couple of places that have been demonstrated in all the resistant taxa to exist. So flip that on its head, you can tell if something's not resistant if it fails to have a resistant type of gene in that location. Mm, it's really clever. That made any sense. It was a little bit rambling. The genius of this, in my mind, and I remember when you were doing it, and I was always thinking it was so cool, the genius of it lies in its simplicity. Like, there's this one... one. Yeah, well, I mean, this all came... Just one tiny area of the... Sorry genome and if it has it you can tell that they can munch on toads and survive and if they don't have it they eat a toad and there's a good chance it'll be game over yeah i mean i'd be lying if it was saying that's it's not entirely that simple because in different orders of things it can be a different uh expressed in different isoforms of that same gene but the gene is still the same thing yeah and this was all made possible by a uh uvari et al paper that Case where when uh, Worcester were on in what was it 20, 2015, which they looked at everything they could and sequenced a whole bunch of stuff looking into this in uh, in uh, reptiles and mammals and all sorts. But it all sort of came from a slightly earlier Uvari paper that was comparing Australian and Asian and African monitor lizards, and <coughs> I feel like that's one of the that's the one that sort of draw attention to okay this is the thing that's making the difference in a invasive toad scenario compared to asian monitor lizards that can eat the toad no problem yeah so there has been a lot of build-up to like a huge amount of research on sodium potassium pump the resistance how it reacts to these bufotoxins that are a type of cardiac glycoside which is linked to oh uh like milkweed stuff and there are a whole load of plants that do it, so it's all had a bunch of research in butterflies and things that feed on milkweed. So there's a lot of background uh, research. And even in rats, they had rats that were injected with, was it uabane, I think, um, with his sort of medicinal ideas of treating uh, or countering heart arrhythmia and dealing with heart stuff or potentially low blood pressure, I think. So there's been a lot of medical stuff as well backing this up and tests on rats and all sorts of genetic fiddling around with rats. Mm. There's a heck of a lot of stuff out there to make this even possible. Yeah, so, I mean, this comes at the end of a long line of people investigating this. but um, Huge line, yeah. So in the paper itself, there's a really awesome figure, um, <coughs> which I know that you did, which is absolutely awesome. And uh, it's basically sort of a phylogeny well, of... finished up. Sorry? Finished up. It was Miguel that put together the actual... Oh, so Miguel did the phylogeny. The hard work behind it. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> well, you did the cool animation. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's like... There's loads and loads and loads and loads of different species here from, you know, frogs, mammals, snakes and birds. 
and um, it's all color coded to demonstrate whether or not they have uh, this resistance to toxicity. And mate, it's pretty grim, isn't it? Like, there's there's a handful yeah. which do, but you know, do you know what percentage don't? I mean, it's got to be like over ninety percent easily, right? Well, there's 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 one Malagasy species that has confirmed resistance. <sighs> Man, out of the seventy-seven looked at. Well, actually, no, sorry, there's more looked at because we sequenced 77 and uh, there were already existing complete genomes of uh, a couple of uh, three different lemur families um, and a few uh, native birds like peregrine falcon and uh, barn owl and things like that, although they the material for there came from different places. They're still the same species, so the chances are that they have the same potassium, uh, sodium-potassium pump. That being said, they're probably less vulnerable because they're non-endemics, so probably know how to deal with toads and or avoid them. Right, yeah. But what we're really talking about is one species that is confirmed to be resistant. Which is? The white-tailed... Now, how do you pronounce it? Tasangi? The white-tailed Tasangi. Yeah, I think that's. I think that sounds right. Basically, it's a little, it's a little rodent, which is interesting because a lot of rodents are resistant, and it seems to be relatively widespread resistance in rodents. So, whether it's just an ancestral state of rodents, or that uh, these white-tailed asangi are actually eating something still in Madagascar, like a plant that's still keeping their resistance up is not known but they should be okay to eat toads mm. and the other thing was um rats but obviously they're not native to madagascar anyway are they yeah well the rats yeah that's sort of one of the uh, i talked about trophic cascades and that's one of the worries is that you start removing predators like um oh your malagasy ground boas and Malagasy tree boas and other uh, like giant hognoses and things like that that are pretty decent rodent predators. You're going to be left with a whole bunch of rodents and not much to stop them. And they've they've already been. There was a time I can't honestly remember when where uh, ground boas and things were over exploited for their skin, and he had booms in the rat populations there. And throw into the mix that Madagascar is still one of the places on Earth that you can get the bubonic plague. Jeez. You don't want big rat populations, not just for plague and health problems, but also you're eating agricultural produce and rice and things. So, 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 so 100 years from now, there's just going to be one giant rat and one giant toad duking out on Madagascar, surrounded by humans coughing and spluttering because they've got the bubonic plague. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 the, that's the nightmare future. That's the dystopian future that is going to become a reality. <laughs> Fighting on a corpse of snakes and predators. Terrible, terrible. Oh, but um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I remember when you were doing this, and um, you had quite a lot of problems because you had in it. You ended up with loads, didn't you? I mean, you've got quite a few different species in here, but um, you tried a lot more, didn't you? And you didn't. Not all of the samples actually managed to work. Yeah, the whole... So we started with a bunch of snakes um, because there was a recent uh, Mohammadi et al. 2016 paper that did, that had good primers to look at snakes. And I said that the monothelizids 
have been done recently as well. So there was that background uh, proven. Like you knew it worked on Squarmates, basically. Squarmates were doable. We had the primers. It should have worked. So we started with the snakes. All worked quite fine. Tried to do some lizards and was met with pretty horrible difficulties where I couldn't get any of the primers to work. Um, jumped over to the frogs because we had primers from a more et al. 20, 2009 uh, paper that was actually looking at the sodium potassium pump of bufonids themselves. Guess what? They're super resistant. Um, so they all, you know, a lot of those work. Not all of them, but we started getting those. And then basically at that point where we had enough samples, it would have been cool to introduce mammals and birds. Hadn't really been done in any sort of, certainly birds. I don't think there had been a single paper examining bird sodium potassium pumps at all. Certainly nothing I could find to get primers for. Yeah. Um, so those were both designed in-house. And by some pure luck, they worked. It's like the most... And we got... <laughs> you designed those, didn't you? It, yeah. I did. Very modest. Very modest. You and just I created some primers. Really... It's pretty badass. <sighs> Anyway, it's very cool. And it's kind of interesting. My way to some <laughs> it's very cool because you could have easily discovered that actually all these birds were sort of background resistant, but the opposite was true. And then, uh, they're not. Yeah, and it, it, it presents an interesting sort of context that the, so many species are just naturally not resistant to these guys and probably just avoid things, avoid toads. That's the easiest, lowest cost method of getting around this is just avoiding it. Yeah, and uh, it's almost quite remarkable how prominent bufophagy, as in eating toads, is in something like a snake, a snake group. That uh, if you go back to the Hamadi paper I mentioned, you know, I think it's was it evolved four times independently. They were suggesting, I think. Often. Wow, I think. that suggests it conveys a really serious advantage if it's coming out that many times independently, doesn't it? Yeah, I think. I definitely know it's, it's definitely once for the sort of killback grass snake family. What was it? Um, uh, Natrix family. Natricidae. That's a ticket. That's Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I was <laughs> miles away. Yeah. Oh, wait, that's cool. I mean, those yeah. guys love toads and frogs. Exactly. There's some of them that are almost exclusively... They're toad specialists. We've got Raphdophis in amongst that, right? Yep. Uh, let me just one. Oh, it looks like it's evolved eight times independently in snakes. Just possibly even nine. It makes you wonder, in the course no. of snake oh, history, rages. how many of these animals have had a munch on toes and just rolled the dice and not been the one that had that mutation. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what's sort of weird that um, basically the what some of these papers are bringing up is that the ability to eat toads is more widespread than the actual toad eating so either implying that additional systems are needed to successfully eat toads or in snakes there isn't much of an upkeep to maintain a resistant sodium potassium pump because of course you look at the monitor lizards and the australian ones lost the resistance even though the sort of ancestral monitor lizard appears that it would have been resistant yeah because in your um in your paper here bengalensis is resistant right which is the southeast asian mm. one of the southeast asian varanids 
Yeah, but something like a Komodo dragon isn't. Actually, yeah, isn't. Where is Bengalensis? It is found like India and Southeast Asia, right? It's not. Is it found elsewhere as well? I don't know. Uh, I'm India, Southeast Asia is as far as I know. Yeah, Indian subcontinent. Also, by the name, you'd suggest it's following the Gulf of Bengal. Yeah, it gets into West Asia as well. But yeah, so yeah, but its its relatives in Australia can't eat toads. And how similar is the um, toxin of the Asian toad to the toxin of a cane toad? Um, I mean, in terms of where it attacks, identical. Um, toad toxin... I mean, it is different. Like, there are subtle differences in the sort of mix of which toxins you're getting and the potency and the exact makeup of it all. But functionally they're exactly the same right okay cool so it'd be interesting to see if there's any variation in the tox in the toxin if it does turn out that there's however many lineages of um asian toads as you suggested earlier it'd be interesting to see if there's any variation in their toxicity across that oh i'm sure there is yeah yeah i'm sure there is because there's there's variation in cane toad toxicity in different environments and stuff so I'm sure there's diversity there. It's just whether it actually makes any sort of practical difference on the ground mm. is a whole other question. It would be... Because it feels like a lot of the time it's just pure overkill. Right. So they're, they're just way more deadly than they need to be. It would be a, 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 an idea for a conservation measure, which is exceptionally far-fetched and has just occurred to me, but you could find a toad which has not got any toxicity and then release it. And perhaps because it was in a novel... To have it out-compete. Yeah, perhaps because it was in a novel <laughs> environment, the actual benefits of the toxicity would outweigh its kind of just like natural ability to survive and you might get diminished toxicity of toads. <laughs> Fight toads with toads. Yeah, like a sort of outbreeding depression. Yeah. But enforced outbreeding depression with lower toxicity. Yeah, like do you remember when we were talking about day geckos and there was the invasive day gecko there was the invasive day gecko, so they released more day geckos to eat the day gecko. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then when the winter comes, they all freeze and die and you're left with you've cleaned up your mess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um Yeah, I um yeah, so I I remember when you were doing this and you were having quite a lot of difficulty with your samples not working because, yeah, you were you were living in Bangor because Wolfgang, who is on this paper, is our joint supervisor. So that's kind of how the whole Bangor thing developed. Shout hmm. shout out to Wolfgang. Don't know if he listens. Hey Wolfgang, but yeah, um, <laughs> it's uh, it was really cool and uh, this resulting paper is really excellent. Have you got anything else you want to say about it? Not in terms of results, I don't think. I mean. Beyond the sort of actual implications, you know, we can dive into that if you'd like. Yeah, let's do that. Because while we're looking at a whole bunch of species that can be poisoned, it doesn't necessarily mean they will be poisoned. Because like I alluded to, you've first got to eat the toad before anything happens. And if you can just downright avoid it, then the chances are you're going to be all right. Mm. And if you're on the right side of a trophic cascade, then you're potentially going to benefit. Because <laughs> saying all these snakes are non-resistant, some of those snakes are probably pretty safe from these guys. Um, Malagasy leafnose snakes. Uh, what is that? Lang uh, Langhar Madagascariensis. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, almost exclusively arboreal, known to 
pretty much only take arboreal prey, largely diurnal, so they're not even going to come across toads most likely. Encounter rates for those and toads are going to be comparatively low compared to, I don't know, some sort of nocturnal snake that lives near water or, or likes disturbed habitats and things like that. So I feel like the real impact, although we've set the sort of groundwork with what species could be impacted, it does not translate into what will be impacted because you're going to be dealing with species traits, uh, where the toad ends up, like just actually how far it can spread, whether it can get into forests, whether it can get into sort of drier areas of Madagascar, and uh, the adaptability of species. Because mm. that's something not to be underestimated, both for the toad and native species. I guess a lot of it depends on whether or not they succumb the first time they munch on one, because animals, a lot of animals have a capacity for learning, don't they? So They do. If they, they it's something do. that makes I mean, them there's... feel bad, it's like us, you know, you don't go back to that same restaurant again if you get the squits, so... Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the trick is, you've got to hope that the toad is not potent enough to kill them straight out, and with a lot of snakes, that's a special risk, because you're dealing with a predator that can't just take a little nibble and leave. When a snake goes to eat something, it's pretty committed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, even in your in your um, in your enhanced discussion, you talk about this ability of non of native species to kind of learn and evade the cane toad in Australia. Yeah. So, like birds do it, um, and and other mammals and things. So there is hope, and I mean, as you're diagram demonstrates there's actually lots and lots of these species which although they're not you know they're not resistant to the toxins they actually aren't going to be eating toads anyway so it's not like this toad can yes. completely obliterate everything but as you say the the damage that the trophic cascade can do is mysterious and terrifying in itself so who really knows well and you are pairing it with a real fear that some of these species are already pretty on edge and the last thing they need and there's a, an additional competitor and any sort of further disruption to the ecosystem. I mean, Madagascar needs serious protection. There's no doubt about it. And uh, this this does set the scene for toads will have some impact. Yeah, it, it's going to happen. If the, if the further they spread, the greater the impact's going to be. But it's going to be something, even if it's behavioural. That's still an impact. And even if we jump back over to Australia, we've now got things pretty decent evidence that there are proper selective changes happening to snakes and mammals in the face of cane toads yeah be that improved resistance or changes of head morphology it's happening things that you know they are changing the very animals that they're living side by side with now scary head shrinkers yeah yeah, because eating a smaller toad, you've got a better chance of survival than a bigger toad, and so on and so forth. Or you're more likely to eat native frogs than a huge toad. So, Yeah, I'm just expecting now a wave of hurt review articles on X and Y animal ate a toad, and this happened. It's coming. Well, this is a thing, yeah. This is another sort of downside of it happening in Madagascar, of all places. There are so many species in Madagascar just left to be described, let alone getting basic ecological information that you can use to judge vulnerability to this. It's yeah. just, it, it really shows up how much work there is to be done. Yeah, so on the subject of kind of what can we do, 
I read a paper from Reardon et al. 2018, um, which was published in uh, Conservation Evidence. Um, and they were talking about... Conservation Evidence? Yeah. I've never heard of it. I've heard of it once before, and it's because there was a paper published by some guys who did um, some adder fencing, and they were measuring how well the adders coped with being excluded um, from an area that was being developed. Right. Really cool paper. Um I think uh, Darren Darren Nash was part of it, I think. Well, not 100%. But um, yeah, so Reed Natal, they did this, this was from this year, they did some tests with different control measures and um, they were trying to work out what the best way of eradicating the toads might be. Um, and so mm. to do this, they did a various different methods. They had hand trapping, which was a seriously labour-intensive process. They had teams of 10 doing eight-hour days for 21 days trying to eradicate toads in a particular area um they had drift netting which uh, lots of people will be familiar with drift netting which is where you essentially build a fence and then the toads kind of come to the fence they travel along it and then at some point there'll be like a little trap or a net uh, in a hole and everything that's walked along the fence kind of ends up stuck in there um which is another method that people use to not just catch non-native species but actually as a means of surveying for species um and they also used pitfall traps, which is just, as people will know, a bucket dug into the ground, toads fall in. Uh, and the other last one they tried was citric acid, which has been used, um, it's been used with some success to uh, destroy the non-native tree frog. Uh, yeah, Eleutherodactylus kokai in Hawaii, which is like an invasive tree frog. Um, so the idea behind that is that you spray the citric acid on the body of the animal and um, it, toads don't react well to it. It basically kills them. Not a very nice way of doing it, but, you know, desperate times call for desperate well, measures. Meant, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's got to be a low-cost and quick mm. uh, method. It's not nice. No, it's not nice. But, but yeah, you know, needs must. Leaving it could be worse. Exactly. And um, so what they were looking at, they, they were looking at all these different sites, and on average they found about 588 toads per hectare with a maximum density of 1,800 toads per hectare, which is like, I mean, that's just an astronomical number of toads. Mm. Um, and as we were talking about earlier... And to think it's only been a few years to them for them to get to that number. Exactly. Yeah, they're just so abundant. Although with cane toads, they were, their abundance began by exploding and then it kind of tampered down, didn't it? So that now... In a lot of areas, they're existing at like a lower, more sort of carrying capacity abundance. Because I think at least with them, it seemed like they kind of exploded initially. And then in areas... Like an initial overshoot, basically. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's exactly yeah. that, isn't it? It's like there's a massive abundance of stuff for them to eat. And then the longer they've been there, you know, they, they can't sustain that sort of extreme number of toads. Um, but as you said earlier on, talking about forest habitats, they didn't find any toads in there. The toads were most numerous in urban habitats. Um, yeah, so basically of these methods that they employed, um, pitfall trapping and drift fencing were really good just for actually estimating the number of toad densities and kind of measuring how long it took for toads to stop being detected. So they kept on repeating these methods, taking out the toads, killing them, and then doing it again. And um, it was a good way of them measuring how long it took to get the toads down to undetectable levels. Um, they could sort of stop breeding. That's, yeah, that's the truth. Yeah. <laughs> undetectable levels, but then how many are left at that point? Well, this is it. And um, yeah. yeah, they, you know, they probably aren't that great as a, 
as a removal method for that reason. Um, because no matter how many buckets you've got dug into the ground, there's going to be the odd toad that isn't going to fall in the bucket. Maybe there's a particularly savvy one. Um, and so in contrast to that, they used the hand capture trials, which was the teams of 10 going out for eight hours a day for 21 days, trying to catch toads. Um, and they had a lot of problems with that. Chiefly, they tried to do that on three different occasions. And on two of them, they actually couldn't get the labor force to actually carry on with it because it was, you know, they don't explicitly say why, but I mean, that's a lot to ask of people to go out for four four mm. hours in the early morning and then four hours at night when it's getting dark to just go and smash toads. I mean, that's physically, and I would imagine quite emotionally draining. It's not a nice thing to have to do. Definitely. I mean, if you asked me to smash toads for eight hours a day for three weeks, I'd feel pretty rough at the end of it. I'd probably need to go to some kind of, Therapy. yeah, you would. You'd need like post-toad therapy. I mean, every time I saw a toad from then on, I'd probably just maniacally pursue it and smash it. You know, you've changed me after those three weeks. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I can't go back yeah exactly and although they were catching a hell of a lot of toads um, they actually weren't seeing a decline in the amount of toads they were catching so even after yeah. three weeks the numbers of toads were very high and you know they're still catching hundreds and hundreds of toads um, which yeah, I mean that's just demoralizing really after three weeks of concentrated toad smashing you're still finding loads of toads and it's not decreasing any any amount at all. Um, that doesn't bode well for the future of a sort of uh, er- eradication plan. And the other thing was, um, yeah. the so the citric acid actually worked really well. Um, you could spray the toads, you could spray it on the environments where there were the toads and it was killing them with reasonable success. But the trouble is, if you wanted to treat the entire known area where toads are found, you'd need 6,000 metric tons of citric acid. Um, which would Oof, that's a lot of oranges and lemons yes it is mate like that's a lot of freshly squeezed juice and do you care to guess how many us dollars that would cost oh well i mean how much would a little jar of lemon juice be that'd be you're looking at a quid for one of those little green bottles that you squirt on your pancakes yeah so what's that like dollar 50 yeah and don't forget that, that's not pure citric bucks. acid that's got water in it Oh, it's watered down. Oh, it would be at least $50. <laughs> For the whole eradication program. For the whole eradication, at least. Well, needless to say, Ben, you've comically underestimated there, as I think you intended to. <laughs> uh, the actual price would be $3.6 million US dollars. Uh, and then you so you take that three dollars start I had and times it by... Yeah, and then you've got to factor into that. A million. You know... You know Agent Orange doesn't spray itself, so you need to get some helicopters, squirt it out the windows. It's going to cost money as well. You know, it's just chaos. And they squirt it out the window. Yeah, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. Look, it's a whole thing, I'm telling you. Look, no, you put it in a hose pipe, mate. You don't just put it in a hose pipe, Ben, because you've got to think about, yeah, the, yeah, you've yeah. Got to think about the size of the droplets. If your droplets are too small... You get one of those pressure washers. Mate, if your droplets are too small, your your citric acid is going to blow away in the wind. And if your droplets are too long, you're not going to get good coverage. There's a lot to consider, I'm telling you. Um, oh, yeah, you need one of those, um, like, crop dusters. You do, but you need one that comes out of the back of a helicopter. You're talking about the, um, what is it, the DDT crop duster things. That's what you need. You need a little plane. No, I was thinking at the end of uh, North by Northwest. That's what I was actually thinking of, but yeah. Don't know what that is. It's a film. Starring, who is it? Cary Grant. It's a famous one where he's getting chased by the crop duster. And uh, yeah, 
how on earth did they manage to make a film from a pitch about a person being chased with a crop duster? <laughs> well, that's not the that's you know that's just part of the climax. It's not the crux of the film. Oh, okay. Crux of the film is he's mistaken for somebody else who doesn't really exist or does exist, or he's he's like a CIA guy, but he's not. But you, it's a great. You're film. talking to a man who thought the fugitive was about a man catching a train. <laughs> well you know he had to be somewhere (laughs) he was in a rush all all the time um so yeah they just never stopped (coughs) this paper they kind of suggest you know citric acid is a cool way of doing it potentially um although you do need a stronger concentration than you do when you're squirting tree frogs presumably because so just um just you know just play devil's advocate here Mm. what's the potential for collateral damage well, they did some tests on plants, and it seemed like plants were pretty chill about being sprayed with um, citric acid. Yeah, I wasn't thinking plants. I know, yeah, they don't I was thinking really of, mention... Like, false tomato frogs and stuff. Yeah, they just kind of don't really mention the frogs, so um, probably not good. <laughs> like, if you think... If, if you need a stronger oh, concentration no. to kill a toad, then you, then you do the, the adorable little tree frogs that they're trying to kill in Hawaii. And, um, yeah, I, I can't believe it will bode well at all for the other frogs but you know whatever so it's a scorched earth approach so we've got to catch the other frogs keep them in captivity for a bit squirt all the cane toads and then release the other frogs is going to be what's going to have to happen i think yeah combination toads but yeah yeah it doesn't it really doesn't bode well um yeah so that was kind of their main the the conclusion is much as your conclusion which is like you know uh, it's not looking good they estimated... It's not looking good. They also estimated there but, were 7 million toads. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the previous estimate was something like 4 million in the, in the eradication report that was done, what, 2015, 2014, 2015? Yeah. Must have been 2015 or 2016, actually, because it was after the Moore paper, I think. Right. But yeah, a lot of toads and a lot of breeding capacity... Oof. Well, I mean, this is a bad, you know, it's a bad thing. It's a bad, it's a, it's a sad topic, but I mean, it's really interesting. Some of this work that's being done um, and, you know, it's a threat and it's important that people understand what's going on in Madagascar and kind of yeah. brace and try and work to find a solution. Well, and the other sort of like slightly grim, but good news about it is it does present people with a rather fantastic lie living laboratory experiment to see the impacts of an invasive species and potential trophic cascades if you get in there quickly and get your baseline data done oh boy could be fascinating yeah now's the time to do the baseline studies isn't it yeah which i'm pretty sure people are working on yeah well on that very harrowing note well yeah (laughs) congratulations on your paper it was a very interesting read albeit pretty devastatingly harrowing one um could not have done any of it without those fantastic co-authors that you listed. Yeah. Absolute fantastic experience. Loved every minute of it. That's awesome. And so, on that note, shall we move on to our species of the bi-week? Let's do it. Good. Okay, so, you, you introduced this one, I reckon. Uh, so we have Landestoy, Turner, Marion and Hedges 2018, a new species of Caribbean toad from the Southern Hispaniola. Published in Zootaxa, as so many new species are. Yeah. Big brutish toad. What do we got? 
Yeah, so we're still on Toads, and it's from the same family as the Your Monstrous one. Um, Which all Toads are from. Oh, so that is the family of Toads. And so it it's is. called... Buffonidae. Yeah. Buffonidae, which is Latin for the Toad Gang. And it's actually not... <laughs> Wait, I thought, it was, I thought it was Latin for small warty boys. Small warty boys. <laughs> Big warty yeah. boys. Um, yeah, so this is a genus from the Caribbean called uh, Peltophryne. Uh, it contains 12 species distributed sort of throughout the Greater Antilles. There's eight species on Cuba, three on Hispaniola, and a single species on Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. Um, prior to this paper, people hadn't really done a lot about these fro- these toads. I keep saying frog, that's, a, that's bad. Um, only one species has ever been. Well... Is it the case that all toads are frogs, but no frogs are toads? A little bit. I mean, like, toad's a bit of a funny term, really, because they are just a family of anurans. So, yeah. And even some some members of Buffonidae are called frogs, but some common names refer to them as toads and stuff. So it's not... I don't think there are any hard and fast rules apart from if it's in Buffonidae, you could call it a toad, I guess. Yeah. But at this point, you know... Boofing it'll do the job. Yeah. So um it's all a bit of a non point. <laughs> Sorry I brought it up. So um <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, prior to this only one species have been included in a molecular analysis. So it's a bit of a mystery, this genus, Peltophryne. Um there was also a mysterious frog. I, honorable mention, okay, this isn't the species of the bye week, so hold your horses, everyone. But um there's a species Don't get called... overexcited now. Yeah, exactly. There's a species Not like last week where we accidentally did two. Look, we well, were not talking about that and it was it was last it was last <laughs> bye week actually, not last week. Um common Oh, it was a dark time. Common misnomer. Anyway, never mention that again. Um there was also a mysterious frog called Peltophryne Fractor, which has a really cool ring to it, right? Fractor, one awesome name. Um that one had only been seen a few times since being discovered in 1972, so it's a bit of a mysterious creature. Unfortunately, though, one of the things they did in this paper um, was absorb it into Peltophryne gwentheri, which is sad. Um, you know, obviously, molecular analysis, you've got to bow down to it. They know what they're doing. But um, it's just a shame that... Uh, well, we, uh, you know, let's... Uh, you know, going, going back, we, you know, we had our indigo stuff and we made the point of... Yeah. Sometimes these things get overruled or not apparent and things like that. And I guess one thing that we don't do with this segment is actually, uh, because that would be an incredible amount of work to dig into the actual potential, uh, you know, critic, critically ana- analyze these things because we're simply just not qualified for that. Yeah. And yeah, that just sounds like a hell of a time. That's that's a whole other ball game. I, exactly. I'm not in the business of... Um rebuttals especially not about molecular analyses no. uh, <laughs> exactly but yeah so anyway when we do all these species of bi week that is the little caveat there is uh who knows how long they stay a species or not yes anyway no more derailing because we're already at an hour and a quarter <laughs> so yeah sorry, <laughs> so uh yeah get back on basically track. this this frog had a cool name, Fractor, which is from the Latin fractus, meaning an irregular surface like broken stone, which is spectacular of a name for a toad. Mm. Um, unfortunately, it's been absorbed into Peltophryne gwentheri, which is just named after some dude, I presume. Um, oh. I don't know the history of that. I'm sorry if I've offended anyone by saying that, but yeah, whatever. Um, anyway, on to our new species. <laughs> this new species is called Peltophryne armata, 
which is a Latin singular feminine nominative adjective meaning armoured, which refers to the fact that they've got these hilarious eyebrows. <laughs> Their eyebrows are brilliant. <laughs> Literally, best eyebrows on any toad. You know, these herpetologists don't call them eyebrows. They call them extended cephalic crests. But to you and I, or maybe not, to you and I in a non-professional sense, they are eyebrows. Frog eyebrows. Yeah, and they look super yeah. cool. Um, and... Yeah, they're also referring to the massive paratoid glands which bear spinose keratinized tubercles. Basically, the poison glands have spiky lumps on them, um, giving the frog, <laughs> giving the toad, I should say, a hilariously grumpy, warty appearance, like a sort of disgruntled elderly relative. Um, who's also got jaundice. <laughs> who's also severely jaundiced, because as you say, yeah, these frogs are very yellow. Um, and actually, something that's super cool about them is that they seem they can change colour. Um, but we'll get onto that in a second. Will? Yeah, we'll get onto that in a second because this is a medium-sized frog from the Dominican Republic, between the Barahona Peninsula and the southern slopes of the Sierra Sierra de Bajoruco. Uh, females are bigger than males, which is pretty standard for a toad. Um, yeah, and they're from semi-deciduous forest in the limestone-based southern slopes of this lovely Sierra, um, as we say in the Dominican Republic. Mm. So what they do is they hang out like by these little pools of water in this limestone environment. You know, it sounds very similar to Madagascar with their kind of frog diversity. Um, well, it's another one of these limestone cast yeah. environments that just seem to just produce species willy-nilly, just constantly yeah. coming out of the stonework. Well, quite literally in, in this case, because they love burrowing into the stones. And one of the things they do is they tuck themselves in and uh, they demonstrate phragmosis, which... Um, is not the exceptional ability to throw a grenade. It's actually when they tuck into a little crevice and then they puff up their little bodies so that you can't claw them back out again. <laughs> oh, Phragmosis. I reckon a, you'd get a bird with a very pointed bill that could pop them and pull them out. Mate, if such a bird exists, I, w- I would like to know what it is so I can hate it because that is just cold-hearted. <laughs> oh, there'll be, there'll be one. Hmm. So If not yet. There will be. So unlike most of these new species we just talk about, they actually know a reasonable amount about, about their natural history. So they hang around near these little... surprising amount, yeah, yeah. Hang around near these little pools of water, making these crazy chirpy calls. And um, if you bother them, they're bright yellow when they're out and about and displaying to their friends. But if you bother them, they get all shy and then they go in their little hole and they turn brown, which is... Pretty remarkable, really. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, they're changing colour to presumably match their surroundings. They said it sort of seemed to suggest that. Um... And the other thing that's cool about them is um, the toadlets um, actually have kind of a green background colour with light blotches. Yeah. And it looks like a limestone yeah, floor. Yeah, sort of pinky, pink, almost pinky blotches. Yeah, it's right? like pinky, they're... beigey, really cool, nice colour. Yeah, they're completely, completely different from your adult toads. Yeah. And it looks like this particular herbaceous plant, um, the sort of blotches, it just looks like either, you know, lichen-y cast limestone or this really cool plant mm. so they're actually like really well camouflaged and then they go through the ontogenetic change and they turn to this like yellowy base color and extremely pissed off expression yeah grumpy armored toad but yeah a really cool toad we haven't really described awesome. what they look like beyond having hilarious um sort of eyebrows but they are they look actually very similar to the uh dutta that we've been discussing um just like 
Well, it's classic toad shape. Yeah, yeah. Like anyone who's seen a toad has seen what this vaguely looks like. It's sort of yellowy with a white belly and sort of raised bumpy skin with little black spots. Um, yeah, mm. it's a cool frog. Um, cool toad. It is a frog. It's also a toad. Uh, yeah, but the authors recommend it should be critically endangered because there's slash and burn agriculture. They have a really narrow range. People and humans, because all the water runs underneath the ground, they tend to drink from these little pools that the toads inhabit, and that's getting them all smashed up. And, um, yeah, also there's some toad-on-toad warfare. The cane toads are only one and a half kilometres away, so by now they could have actually... Introduced cane toads. Yeah, yeah, introduced. They could have already gobbled them all up. Yeah. Well, which is sad, but anyway, yeah, not 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 to end on a sad note. It's a very cool, very cool toad with a bright yellow color that can change color, which is insanely awesome. Yes. And that sort of wraps up our episode on toads, I think. Yeah, I think so. I think that's covered all sorts of stuff. Yeah, it's cool that we did. It's the first time we've ever done one of our papers on here and i have to stress i really had to coerce ben to do that so don't think of him as some kind of terrible sort of um megalomaniac because i mean he is that but not in his professional life (laughs) 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 Uh, yeah well i'm sure i'm sure i hope it's not going to be the last time we can do this well if we if it is it means my phd didn't go well (laughs) and and you're wasting your time in thailand so hopefully we'll have another chance to do this yeah Maybe something viper related, snake related at the very least. Yeah, we got we're we're amassing a little fleet of slightly snaky stuff. So yeah, that'd be cool. Um, yeah. So any other business? I've got a few bits and bobs. Um, I think we've got people to thank. Do we not? We have. We've got um, a Canadian lady called Jenny Sager, who is our new Patreon, and. Um, yeah, like, not only is she a really generous Patreon, so thank you, Jenny, but she also sent us some photos of some badass geckos. Um, oh, man, they were some great photos of some awesome the geckos. The one gecko was like, hey, guys. <laughs> uh, yeah, so they were Europlatus fimbriatus, which is just this mad-looking leaf-tailed, Madagascan leaf-tailed gecko, so that's on, on. Which we still, they, I mean, they deserve some some talk. They do deserve some talk. They are one of the top, top gecko yeah. I, groups, genuses, whatever the uh, correct term genera. is. Genera. I really like them. They're top notch. Genera. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, congratulations to Jenny, who's actually breeding that species, which is badass. And she sent us a photo of one of the babies, and it had a great beard. And yeah, I was just <laughs> like, wow, best, best email ever. Uh, so yeah. One of the few times you'll be happy to see a bearded baby. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, usually when I see a bearded baby, it's a mixture of anger and revulsion. But not this time. Uh, What else have we got? Oh, yeah. So Scott Ipper messaged, we were saying chytrid again. We should have been saying chytrid. Sorry. We're not going to stop because we just have an inability to remember. Um, But yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, there's a new podcast on the block as well. Which uh, we should we should mention because I must confess. Absolutely. Have you listened to it yet? No, I was going to listen to it today. Yeah, I've uh, while doing some coding, and uh, 
website was down, so uh, <laughs> I didn't. I couldn't download that's a shame. it. I listened to the first fifteen minutes the other night when I got home after a few beers, and uh, I was enjoying the camaraderie. So this is Squar Mates podcast, exceptionally cleverly named. It's Squar Mates with an M, a capital M. So it's like <laughs> not only is they talking about Squar Mates, they're also mates. I mean, well played, well played, fellas. Um, doesn't have the same ring to it as two exceptionally long words that both begin with H, aka pathological highlights. But uh, yeah, it's a wicked name. And this is Mark Schertz, Gabriel Ugretto, and Ethan Kochak, who are all really active on Twitter. Uh, Ethan's like an illustrator, amphibian breeder. Gabriel does wicked sci, like um, paleo art and reptiles and amphibians and all kinds of animal art. And he also knows a lot about reptiles because i remember he got in touch with us about our animal episode so he's like yes. he's like a herpetologist by like he's like an undercover herpetologist and awesome artist and then mark shirts everyone knows mark he's the madagascan herpetology guy working out of germany but yeah so they've kind of teamed up and started this podcast and if you like our podcast you'll like their podcast it's more or less a very similar thing but focusing on herpetological news where we just focus on like random niche stuff that we've read um so, so yeah check it out <laughs> yeah yeah i'm gonna listen to it and i'm i'm looking i'm so looking yeah forward so to am it. i i wish i'd listen so i, I really wish it. i'd had a chance to listen to it but i thought we'd be remiss if we didn't mention it in this episode while it's still new um yeah still hot and fresh yeah, yeah. yeah. but um yeah it sound it sounded good from the, the the 15 minutes i had i just had a crazy weekend i didn't have a chance to spent 10 hours in a car but i wasn't by myself and maya doesn't like her herpetological podcast that much so <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah, she gets her pathological podcast chat on the daily, so to ask her to listen to two and a half hours of it on a car journey would probably be a bit much. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, so uh, have you got anything else? Um, I was planning to have something else, but I just ran out of time today to sort things out. So, no, I have absolutely nothing else. That's, that's okay. So long as we've thanked the people we need to thank. Yes, we have. Um, I'm happy. Yeah. And... I think so. Oh, God. Wasn't there one other small thing? The, oh, the crocodile thing. The crocodile thing. Uh, what was that? Oh, yeah. The crocodile thing. There's a crocodile festival happening, and it might be happening near you. Get excited. Get excited. Because at the minute, there could be a crocodile festival near you, but you don't know. But there's actually only a slim chance, because it's in Florida, I think. Um, let's see. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, okay. So... It's called Crocfest and it's happening on June the 30th at Wild Florida in Keenansville, Florida. Um, and they're raising funds to rediscover the Rio Apoporis Cayman. Um, this is a great thing. I mean, the photos from previous iterations of the festival look really fun. I think it's just a day, an event where you just go chat about crocodiles. It looks like there's some actual... I mean, those are alligators, not crocodiles, but they're cool. We get to see an alligator, potentially even stroke it. I don't know what the rules around alligators are, but I'd be pretty game to stroke one. Um, yeah, it looks like a fun day out. I don't know much about it, but visit their website, crocfest.org, for more information. And if you're in Florida, go check it out. It looks banging. I wish there was outdoor crocodile-related shenanigans near me, but unfortunately, North Wales isn't a hub for that kind of activity. No, I, I only know of a single crocodile that is anywhere remotely close to me. Yeah, and you can't touch it. It's shy. It is shy. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's very low. So I was conscious, Ben, that this episode, I mean, we've gone, this episode's really long. Well done. Congratulations if you've made it this far. Um, and so I was conscious that this episode might have kind of a bit of a sad twist on it. Um, With the invasive species yeah. stuff. Yeah, that was a, yeah. So yeah. I sent out a request for jokes um, and I got a few back 
from various people. Excellent. So are you ready to hear some Excellent. jokes? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I was born ready. Okay, so... Are you ready for breakfast? Uh, okay, so this is the first <laughs> joke. Where do cobras grow up? Um, I don't know where the cobras grow up. In the hood. In the hood. <laughs> I like it. Yeah? You like it, but hood. not enough to laugh. That was from Bart. Well, via, well, it's from Leah White via Bart. I actually think I remember Leah telling that joke at some point, but yeah. Um, uh, we've got another hood. one here from Richard Southworth. Uh, how do you stop a snake from striking? How do you stop a snake from striking? I don't know. Pay it decent wages. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that one got a better response. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then it's because it's it's because it's, it's a bit more absurd, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's snakes can't have jobs; they don't even have hands. Um, which snakes are the best mathematicians? Uh, pythons. Oh no, you've gone too deep there. It's adders. Oh. That was from Damn. that was from maybe maybe pythons are the best bakers. Pythons are the best bakers. What? Yeah, I don't baking pies. Oh, that's terrible, man. No, that was from Scott Ipper. Um, that one was okay. And then we had one from uh, Sudanwa who said this one's not so much a joke as like a sort of vague taxonomical observation. Where are <laughs> where are snakes dumped? What? Where are snakes dumped? Yeah. In Calubrigate. Oh! <laughs> he got it. God, just, that family's a joke, god damn it. <laughs> wow. Everybody knows it. Well played, man. That was like a cryptic one. You did well. Um, cool. Yeah. But yeah, that's it. That, that's all my bits and bobs. Oh, big thanks, people. Yeah, thanks for everyone who contributed a joke. That's lifted the mood. Yeah, it was good. It was some good jokes. Mate, it's amazing. There's so many reptile jokes. The people always come out of the woodwork with those. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Right. Well, I think that just about wraps it up, doesn't it? We've 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 gone we've gone. This is a long episode, so we'll curtail it. Yes. Thank goodness I'm not editing this one. Yeah. Cheers, mate. You ramble on. I'll edit it. But <laughs> <laughs> like, sorry, no, man. I'm only joking. Sorry. No, it's good. It's good. It's interesting to hear you talk about your own thing. I think it's a it's a cool insight. I hope people like it. Anyway, let's wrap it up. Thank you very much for listening. Hmm. Thank you. Goodbye. You're not eating peanut butter again, are you? No.